Hi, I'm Tim Marlowe, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Good evening. Um, in Venice, at the Biennale last year, when Lisa's pavilion opened, Emissaries was the title, she was the artist who represented New Zealand at the Biennale. Uh, I said that her film, In Pursuit of Venus Infected, would be a climactic moment in the climactic show at the end of the Royal Academy's 250th year of celebration, so no pressure on Lisa. (laughs) And it turns out that I was a prophet and that she's (laughs) delivered and that the film piece in our um, Oceania show is stupendous. If you want the stats, 23 metres, over a trillion pixels, and it's now just over 61 minutes of digital film. But that's just a, a factual description. But Lisa is much more than uh, just the author of that stupendous work, which incidentally began its public life in 2015 in Auckland. It's been shown in Venice at the Biennale. It's been shown in a different format, which we may see a little of later on tonight in Campbelltown, uh, Sydney. And, of course, it's now at the Royal Academy, and it will end the journey, or it will make the next stage of the journey, in Cape Bronley in Paris in the new year. But Lisa's been described as perhaps the most important or influential of all time-based artists currently working in New Zealand by no less a luminary than Rhonda Davenport, um, who's the outgoing director of the um, Auckland Art Gallery. And she's worked across a whole range of different mediums, of course, film and video, but performance, sculpture, photography, costume design, some of which we're going to see this evening. She's first shown in Britain, uh, most prominently, in uh, a kind of landmark exhibition. Landmark exhibitions often get retrospectively called landmark, not like Oceania that we knew from the beginning, Um, but in um, Cambridge, um, which is Pacifica Styles in 2006, uh, Nick Thomas, the creator of our show, co-creator of our show, was the co-creator of that one as well, and it was in his museum. 2008, Liverpool Biennale, but now here at the Royal Academy in Oceania. She's got numerous honours. Um, she's not a Royal Academician because she's uh, from New Zealand, but we all live in hope about honorary status. But she was given, uh, in 2014, an Arts Laureate from the New Zealand Arts Foundation. Um, I thought we were going to have a conversation based, uh, <coughs> driven by me. Uh, Lisa's much smarter than that, and uh, it's more forthright, and it will be more interesting for you. She's brought a small presentation. So she's going to present. I will interject, hopefully not rudely, but I'm sure I'll be told to be quiet if necessary. And we will converse as we go through your career up to Pursuit of Venus and beyond. Lisa. Uh, Kia ora koutou katoa ngā mihi nui, kia koutou. Um, I'd like to thank the Royal Academy for inviting... Um, myself and all the contemporary artists and all the makers who are in the show of Oceania, many of whom we do not know who they were. Um, It's a great honour to be here and I was just thinking that um, right now it's turning the 4th of October in New Zealand and it's my father's birthday, so I just want to send a shout out to my dad, Huri Waka, I'm thinking of you, Um, and um, thank you all for coming, Um, and I hope to just share a few insights. I thought um, In Pursuit of Venus has been receiving a lot of interest, 
Um, and some people might think I just popped up yesterday, but clearly I'm a bit older than that. And um, I've uh, been a very committed media artist for the past 30 or so years. So if you indulge me, I thought I would just show some images and we can chat as we go along and just try and unpack some of the things that I've been interested in over the years. So I come from, um, my father's Māori, he's from the far north of the North Island, so I'm of Ngāpuhi descent, and my mother is English, her mum is from Middlesex, London, and my grandfather is from Blenavon in Wales. So it's a real treat for me to be on this side of the world sharing um, some of the things that have really inspired me as an artist. Um, I'm often um, seen as an Indigenous artist, which I'm very happy to be, but um, I've always said, if you're going to pigeonhole me, give me lots of pigeonholes, because I think there's so many different things that... Um, people are much more interesting than just black and white. All those shades of grey kind of usher in um, things that are really important for politically for us today as people. But you were, you were born and brought up in Auckland, and I know you've travelled and you've worked elsewhere and you live in Auckland now. Does that feel home? I mean, identity may be a disparate thing, but Auckland is where you are at home. Yeah, so... Um, I call myself a native two times. One year I started a journal and gave myself lots of nicknames and whenever people called me things, I just have this big list. <laughs> um, but I'd say native two times. My father came down to Auckland because after the war years, um, New Zealand economically was going undertaking a huge change and a huge shift. So he um, left his home where he was born and came to Auckland to make money to send home for his family. Um, as a Māori family, a lot of them were very large. Uh, from a tribal perspective, uh, you would make as many children as you possibly can to make your tribe strong. So he comes from a family of 17, um, which is so unusual these days to, to have big families. But it's rivaling Lucy and Freud, actually, to put it into a British context. <laughs> well, I think... Um, I don't know, I think the only other people I've met that have such big families are usually Irish. <laughs> there's, there's something in that. <laughs> you said it, only a Welsh Maori could say that. I possibly couldn't comment. But it's quite lovely when you have um, lots of people, and I don't know, that's kind of a bit mad, and you can almost not even remember everybody's names. Sometimes my dad would look at me and say, Joanne, Shereen, Kay, Lisa. You know, <laughs> sort of, there's just so much going on that you're sort of part of this thing, but... Um, it's this, this, bigger, this bigger community that sits around you. So, yeah, Auckland's always been home. And um, I've always felt like Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, is the centre of my universe. Um, as I was growing up, there were a lot of people who couldn't wait to have their big, what we called a big OE, their overseas experience, um, because it was a bit of a backwater in some ways. But on the other side of it, I always thought that... Um, New Zealand is a place that's rising up out of the Pacific Ocean, that we're about to get bigger. Um, and the, the other thing that I now have come to understand as I've got older is that we are the, um, we are the teenagers of the world. We are the last landmass to be um, populated by people. We were the last to be so-called discovered. Um, and 
New Zealand or Aotearoa sits right next door to Australia, which I see as one of the oldest and most ancient cultures. So um, to me, it's like the snake swallowing its tail. They have this kind of mythological history of the rainbow serpent. And I think that within the Māori philosophy, you can learn from your elders. There's the tuakaina, tuakaina taina. Elders, elders teach youth, and youth teach the elders. And I think that... Um, that's something that we can model for the world. We could learn from that at the Royal Academy. I'll come. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Yeah, let's Indeed. Move on. Okay, so um, <clears throat> what I thought I'd do is just show that I've had a very busy year this year post um, Venice. One of the nicest things that's happened for me is I had my first survey show. Um, so it's 30 years of video practice, and this image here that you're looking at, um, it's called Cinemania, and I love that word. Um, it was one of my students when I was teaching. I've taught for 25 years um, teaching uh, media sound practice to tertiary students, and in his essay, he wrote um, Cinemanic, because he didn't know about the cinema, and I just thought it was such a marvellous um, yeah, yeah term, a lo lovely word. Something and that I... Andre Breton could have come up with, <laughs> yes. actually. It's great. Um, and we had a big debate whether to call the show Cinemanic or Cinemania, but um, one of my nicknames is um, Rayhana. Well, my, my company is called Rayhana Animations because I have an animation background. So I thought mania was quite good. And um, sometimes being an artist, that uh, describes what it feels like. And that feeling certainly hasn't um, shifted. In fact, it's got more and more um, as my career's grown, um, it's definitely maniacal. Do you just you mentioned um, education or teaching and at art school, and we're really conscious of the the fact that there's an art school here. We've made it much more obvious and much more prevalent. I mean, I, I know it's here, but the, our visitors will go through it. And your your arts education, you were at Elam back in the day, and then when you were. Mature, reaching mature or middle years, you know, approaching 50, you did a master's. So there's quite a big gap between your, the two parts of your formal education. You were teaching in the meantime and you're teaching now. That is quite interesting. Um, so teaching and learning and being a student and seems to have punctuated your career, not just started you off at the beginning and then you were launched as an artist. Yeah, and it's, um, it's a lifetime journey. I felt when I did my, um, I went through art school at a, it's called Elam School of Fine Arts, and that was in 1983, so really a long time ago now, I um, graduated in 1987, <coughs> excuse me, and some people thought that you roll into masters, but I thought, I think actually you want to roll in experience, and I didn't want to just go from, be stuck in this kind of education mould endlessly. I felt like it was more important for me to go and practice and learn some things and trial them because, you know, art is just a proposition and one of the things that you learn by making and showing is seeing how people read and understand things, like how it actually operates in the real world. Um, and what happened is I was already in this process of working towards making In Pursuit of Venus and... Uh, when I was working at another tertiary institute called Unitech, um, one of my colleagues asked me to do a master's because he said he felt like it would inspire the students and lift the quality of that program. So I agreed to do that because I thought it would be really nice to know what it feels like to be a student as well because 
it's hard as a student. I think art students, they always, um, some of them find writing really difficult. Um, so for them to see me going through that process was really useful for them. And um, it was really interesting teaching students to be political and not putting up with some of the things that were happening and, and, and explaining to them how you can go about creating and having a voice. Um, you don't have to accept what's on offer. And, uh, and I think that comes from knowing and meeting and seeing um, our Māori history of activists. Uh, Māori have always been quite strong in, in their... Um, the way, the forthright way that they might talk through issues. I think it's one of the most beautiful philosophies that we have in our own culture is the idea that when you're inside the meeting house, which is like the body of an ancestor, that's the space where everybody has the right to speak, young and old, men and women, and you're all standing on the same level, um, which is very different to this sort of situation where no, we're, we're head down here. Okay. But it's a really nice thing that everybody has the right to speak. Mm. Um, and I think activists are really important too because while for some people it might seem like a mad idea, you start pushing around where people's thinking is and um, what becomes the middle shifts with that. So um, that opportunity to work alongside the students as a student was... Um, I saw how hard it was to be a student, which was really cool. good. Well, let, let's look at how you found your artistic voice or became, developed your artistic language, because I, I know that you've got some earlier work in the, in the retrospective to show us. Um, so Cinemania, this is, we're just standing in the entrance to the room, and one of the things that was really great as a video artist, and what a lot of people don't understand, is oftentimes when I'm working on projects, they sit inside a computer and you're only looking at one screen at a time. And I started making work um, while I was at Elam, and I, I found I was reading about the Black Audio Collective. I was reading about Bill Viola. I was reading about all these amazing video artists overseas, but all I was seeing is small images reproduced in books, and all I could imagine what was happening within these um, moving image sound and visual works was what I could glean from the writing. So I think that helped me um, create a very good sense of imagination, which I've used in my practice. And as a, as a moving image artist, you really have to have a good sense of what it is that you're trying to create so that you can bring people along in your journey. But also for me, just standing here, when I look at this image here, which you're looking at over there, um, it was the first time that I could like spin around a room and see really a lot of work all in one sweep of, sweep of a gaze. And I would never, ever have that opportunity at home. Even um, we've been working on In Pursuit of Venus, um, just, just um, tweaking it up and making it as beautiful and perfect as I want it to be. Uh, we've been working on it all year, and I didn't see it until we came in here into the Royal Academy because I don't have five projectors, I don't have a really big wall, and I'm only ever working on very small parts at a time. So for the first time, I felt the sense of achievement because I could see um, a work of Silent Cardona where I was working with Philly Michael Black, a very famous Māori songstress. I could look through and see In Pursuit of Venus, some portraits, and right, um, just on the right-hand side of this image is... Uh, a work called Native Portraits, 
And I made this for the opening of Te Papa Tonganewa, which is a museum in Auckland, uh, in Wellington. The National Museum. The National Museum. And um, it was after a building program. And I wanted to share some thoughts on this particular work because it was an 11-channel video work. And what I did is I was researching their photographic archives and looking at the ways that Māori had been recorded at the turn of the 19th century because these were the, um, the artefacts and the ways that people were understanding how we looked, how we acted. Um, there was also ideas about the camera stealing your soul. Uh, all these kind of things were circulating. Also, this sort of shift. I, I'm, I'm really interested in um, costume and fashion and what people wear and what that means. Um, when I was going through art school, my... Um, my my rear twist said to me, oh, you wear na nail polish and sculptors shouldn't wear nail polish. And I said, no, 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 but Maori chiefs, they wear the best garments that you could ever imagine. They might, might take two years to make and they'll have their hair up in a very particular way. And it talks, there's, there's a information that sits behind all of that. There's a whole lot of coding that's about who you are, it tells a story before you've even spoken to a person. So that kind of costuming is very interesting to me and it's something that's um, followed me throughout my career and one of the reasons that I really like working with film and video. Um, so what I thought I would do is um, talk about these videos. It was part of this 11-channel work. There was um, Worked with Laserdisc technology, which we had made in America at the time. I mean, there was, it was just a whole new kind of language. But um, on the right-hand side of the screen, I worked with a very, very old 18-inch um, camera. Um, and I sort of looked at images that came from the carte de visite and postcard technology and just sort of genre styles. Recreated them. Recreating them. Um, I took a series of images and reimagined the moments before or after the image is taken so, so that I could sort of start to look at the politics of what's going on, why images were recorded. Sometimes I, I think I went in thinking the Burton brothers were constantly just taking images willy-nilly of Māori people, but then realised that Māori were actively engaged in commissioning their own portraits for their own ends. So it's sort of opening up that field of view really starts to play into some of the ideas that, that we see in, in Pursuit of Venus. So who owns your identity? I mean, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because there's that theory, well, it's not a theory, it's an obvious statement, that other people own your identity to a certain extent because they see you, you don't see yourself, but you do see yourself in the mirror. And although it's completely tangential to Fiona Pardington's photographs of life casts in the exhibition but it does focus on the face. It's an interesting connectedness, but yours is more about codes of representation and self-presentation here rather than the essence of a person, which is what a portrait purports to be. Well, it sort of picks up on that as well because in traditional times, uh, Māori practised um, preserving heads and um, when revered people passed away, they would smoke them, um, which I've had... It, described to me by a woman who used to do that, a very elderly woman when I was young. And the idea of that was that um, each year after a person has 
died, you would bring them out and remember them. So it's a sense of remembrance. Uh, but that became impossible post-colonisation, and that's where photography came in and shifted and took over that mm. process. So many of the commissioning of these photographs were for that same, for that same reason. Was the photograph, and the rest is a trigger for your imagination, completely from your imagination, or are there accounts or stories that actually fed into that narrative? So... Um, Amakura is a, um, an older woman. I found a photograph of her when she was in her very elderly years. And the only description that sat with it was that she danced with Sir Governor Hobson at the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. So for me, that, um, I know it's quite a quiet piece because there's multiple other things that were happening within this space. Um, but for us, the Treaty of Waitangi is the start of everything. Yeah. And the Treaty of Waitangi was signed um, in the far north of New Zealand. And the government has been making reparations with all the tribes. And we are still the last one to come to our final payout of whatever that will be. And I think that's because it was the first place that people came into. All the boats landed in the far north. Um, and so I just thought it was really important to have the Treaty of Waitangi in there, just, just a quiet sort of reference to it. I just imagined her dancing with him, and I just thought it was really interesting to sort of talk about that history in a way that's not kind of pointing fingers, but still is a, is a political putting it in people's minds about where we come from and why it still is important. I was, I was going I, to use the phrase micro-memory, but that's not right, but... but I like the way that you're dealing with bigger historical issues through individual lives lived and lost, or even if they're imaginatively recreated. It seems, it seems a very human way yeah. in. And I love the sort of um, the stain of the dirt <laughs> that's left on this kind of um, carpet. But, um, you know, what's in the name? And, and this kind of very uncomfortable beginning to, to that... How, how would it have been when this man photographed her? There was a lot of, at that early time in the 19th century, so many people were dying through flus and smallpox. There was many, many um, pathogens that were travelling through the country. So there really was this idea that Māori were a dying race. Um, and so there was this big rush by Lindau, Goldie and photographers to record Māori people. But I w really wanted to sort of shift it and, and use that as a political act and another, and another type of remembering. Mm. Let's, let's move on, because there's much to unpack there, but I know you've, oh, got, you've, you've got other works. The other thing is I loved working with Rachel House. She's an amazing... Um, I had to talk her into it because when I showed you the image of the woman that she was replicating, who was much older, I said, no, but you can carry this. And I got to work with her again because she became the dramaturg for all of the In Pursuit of Venus vignettes that we worked on. So it was about kind of carrying on these um, histories and relationships together. Um, this was also on the show. We had this kind of crazy room. This was our mania room. Um, and uh, sorry about the quality of that, that um, video, by the way. It's actually 4.3. It really dates back a long time. And it was made for an iPhone. But I, I thought it was still useful to include it in, the, in this presentation because I think it kind of 
really talks about representation and the ways I'm unpacking media as a media artist to think through um, the politics of where I come from, um, image making and image taking. Um, and this image here is inspired by the black and white minstrel show. Well, you've apologised apologize for the quality of the work. I apologise for the quality of British television in the 1970s. Then. But we grew up on it in New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand was very, very English. This was the homeland until there was a sort of moment in time and then it kind of shifted and we started to look towards America. Um, and it's when Britain sort of did sever its ties. It really didn't want to know about New Zealand so much anymore. But I remember watching the black and white minstrel show and finding it this like crazy format. And um, in this particular scene here, I made a film called Wog Features. And I was looking at the history of wogs and gollywogs and what they represent and using them to kind of do children's programming and sort of playing with it, gender stereotyping. But also these two, these two figures, which is myself and my girlfriend, who with her blonde hair and my, mine with my black. We start kissing each other and the black and white minstrel makeup just ends up being this smushy grey, so it's kind of, it's not didactic, it becomes this kind of um, grey image. Um, and the other component of my, my um, I put myself through art school by working for animation firms, and it was at that time that I was looking at uh, photography or series of still images um, magically moving. And so I loved this idea of um, working with animation. I worked with some older, you know, it was this kind of Disney-style um, hand-painted material. But I worked with some really fantastic older gentlemen. This has really passed and become a digital medium and a digital format now. But I love that thing of um, creating movement frame by frame using 16 millimeter. Um, cameras, rotoscoping things and bringing them to life. Later on I decided that I wanted to make a series of puppets and I made this work down in Christchurch. I was doing a residency and I got invited to propose a project for three months and um, as I want to do I, I, I found out that the flat that the residency was in was only there for three months, but it, like, no one was in there for the other nine months, so I said, can I stay? So that I could have a whole year to make a film, because when you're making something frame by frame, it takes a long time. But really the process was asking permission from the local people to be able to tell their story. You can't just go marching into somebody else's land, take their stories and kind of present them yourself. So I spent three months just waiting for permission to present this, this story. Um, and this is um, Hine and um, Tiao, her chief, her father. And um, it's just another side of my practice that I would really like to get back to at some point in time. Um, but I think that kind of learning and being outside your own territories was very, very useful process. An animation has many associations, one of which is playfulness. Another level is caricature. It's clearly not that. But... How were people whose stories you were telling about them, how, how did they feel about the medium? Did, did you have to persuade them that it wasn't trivialising, that there's such a thing as serious play or playfulness or satire? One of the things I love about animation as a medium is that it, um, it um, appeals to the child in all of us. And, and I learnt from animation that you can have 
children and parents sitting alongside each other and enjoying something at the same time. And they might be understanding different levels of information from that material, but that it's actually, it is magical. I think that's the beauty of it. And it's something that works in, in Pursuit of Venus as well. Kids absolutely love it. You know, Parents are surprised. I've had no end of um, emails saying, oh, I can't believe that my child would sit there and, and yes. stay with the work for a long period of time. But I think they love the magic in it and they love looking at people. But uh, what it does, it's like a sleight of hand. You can be really political and you can, while you're sort of, Tell, telling a funny joke, but you can still be playing with satire as well. And I think that's a really great thing that I've, that I've taken from my animation practice. Absolutely. Now, and you're right about children. And in fact, we always feel that children should be protected from, let's say, the brutality that happens in parts of In Pursuit of Venus. And yet you see the kind of action movies and the, and the, and the films that children watch. And also you think about children's imaginations which I don't know about yours, but mine was pretty dark, and yeah. I don't need to protect <laughs> my child from his own dark imaginations. No. But also the playfulness and the fun and the escape as well yeah. is something that's important. I think it's good to introduce those things. Kids love being scared. They'll go like that. <laughs> and, and I actually got taught, you know, a few people asked, questioned me about this work because there is a death in it, and it is a tribal story. And um, one of the things that I did was when I first finished it, I um, pitched it for a short film festival in the documentary section, and they wouldn't let me put it into the documentary section. And I said, but this is tribal history. Um, it ended up being in a different, like an experimental um, section. But I also wanted to challenge people to think about, well, if I'm telling a story with animation, but it's tribal history, it's a documentary. It is a document of time. And I have the... Um, I have gone to the local people and they've given me the right to tell the story. So it's kind of an interesting thing. Well, no, that's funny, because that's exactly what I wanted to ask you. You triggered the idea about who owns their own histories and who owns their own identities. Because, you know, there's, there's a lot of contention in the art world. I mean, you know, your compatriot Luke Willis-Thompson has had a lot of issues over his exploration of a particular African-American narrative. Um, the other side of the coin, one of our journalists, which I just thought was lazy and missing the point rather than being offensive, but you know, people couldn't see the wonderful sculptures of the Hawaiian gods, which are made out of feathers and dog teeth, without saying something like Sesame Street. And you think, well, yeah, <laughs> but you need to go beyond your, your superficial reference because this clearly isn't that, so why don't you move through? But that's maybe a different thing. But, but I could have understood people getting a bit more irate about that. But where, where do you stand I'm sorry to put you on the spot. I mean, I'm clearly not absolutist, but where do you stand on Maori histories and the right of people to explore or tell those? Oh, it's a really, it's a totally contested place to work from, so it's very difficult. And as a Maori woman, um, it's actually really hard for me to tell Maori stories in some ways, because uh, the local people will set a higher standard from you than they might from others, people from other backgrounds. So you have to be really super careful. And that's where that 
that notion of talking to as many people as you possibly can is really important because once you're questioned on it, at least, you know, I'll, I'll, talk, I'll say, oh, I've spoken to this person. It's not the whole tribe, but I, I would not go about telling other people's stories without having some kind of permissions because it's actually really dangerous to do that as well. It's a danger to yourself and to your family and that's old, maybe, in olden days. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't do that. When you say danger, you mean what, emotional, intellectual, physical? All of that, yeah. There's this idea of utu that you can um, kind of, I don't know what the word is in, in English. What would an utu be? Revenge. It's like if you've done something and you cross somebody, something might come back to you. You might get sick or somebody in your family might get sick. Mm -hmm. And there are true, you know, I know that these things happen. Um, in fact, when I made this film, some really, it's almost like the um, X-Files. If I told those stories, people would think I was making them up. But there is, this is a story of death and um, revenge, and uh, is about a very contested place, mm. and some quite terrible things happened to some children that I knew of their tribe and from my family. So you have to really be very careful in the way that you use this material. And I don't know what it feels like for you having um, these incredible um, representations of Atua gods and chiefs and people in Royal Academy, but I know from um, Tamari, I, I, I liken this show to Tamari Exhibition, which was a really big show that travelled to the Met and was just purely Maori work. But if you, there's a book called um, From the Light. You know, overnight, uh, some of those images would shift and be looking at each other like they've been talking to each other overnight. Um, there's real power in those works that are in that room. So um, these are things that are very real to us. And if you transgress the line, you have to be um, prepared for what might come back. And, um, you know, yeah. and, and in re relation to Luke, um, he has been working with notions of death for a long time. It's not, he's not just trying to be outrageous and trying to, you know, it, it's a really true investigation which comes from his own family background, so um, there's a depth there that, although people are new to his work, there are series of works, and yes, they could be seen in a particular light, but, you know, he, he has to walk that line for himself, too. Of course. It's a very thoughtful answer. It's the most elegantly veiled threat I've ever received as well, if I try <laughs> But I... I, I you, you ask rhetorically but, but how we feel about a lot of those objects and artefacts and, 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 and works. And the answer is mystified, overwhelmed, respectful, and curious. But I think one of the things about contemporary art, and certainly your art, is that it deals with those issues. But I don't feel, maybe I should. I, I mean, I've been asked to give a talk about the show, but in particular about you somewhere in the next month. And you're putting an aspect of yourself in your work out into the public domain. But in some ways, it's part of your story that is made public and it becomes something, therefore, that, if not transcends your story, becomes something removed from you. Mm. How much of yourself, it's a very broad question, but how much of your own story are you uneasy about revealing in your art? Or is that never a consideration? I mean, I don't see you as an expressionist, but I just wonder where the self sits broadly across the practice. Well, I think for me, um, because my father left his tribal homelands, 
one of the things that art has given me the permission to do is to learn about the histories that were lost or what I couldn't find. And, and in New Zealand, um, uh, te reo Māori, or our, our um, indigenous language, has only, you know, it's, it's, it's almost been lost over a number of years. And it certainly wasn't being taught at school when I went through um, primary, high school. I don't know what that relates to um, in your systems here. But um, I've also, when I was very young, I remember hearing great or Māori orators speak. And sometimes when you hear fantastic people speak, you actually know what they're saying, even if you don't know the language. You know, they're just so... that They kind of give a energy and a feeling and they kind of transmit yes. knowledge in a different manner. You, you also know when hateful people speak. I've, I mean, yes. sorry, this is not trivialising it, but I've seen the footage of Hitler speaking and this is a kind of controlled, barking, rabid... Yeah, and you can feel it yeah, and you yeah. know what's going on without being a German speaker, so to speak. So I thought, um, for me, I've, I've loved being a filmmaker because a, a lot of my work is quite experimental. I mean, that costume drama, Waltz, was very atypical. It wasn't, I'd never done anything like that before. But I did see the power of telling really simple, one or two simple ideas and conveying something. Uh, and with all the other works that sat around it, I could create a much bigger picture um, and that's I've, I see that as the precursor to In Pursuit of Venus because in a way there's 70 vignettes, they're all little stories and there's multiple little things reasons that I've chosen to make them but collectively they start to paint a much broader picture and I think it's that broad picture um, and that not pointing fingers at people that allows people to just sort of take in as much as they can and when I think you were almost going to go on to say, um, you know, like that if you know something and it can hurt you, um, you're much more aware of it. But for some people, if you don't know about it, I think that's a great place to be because you don't want that um, historical um, layer to necessarily stop people from engaging it at, a, at a different level because they do work on all these multiple levels. Well, that's interesting because your practice and the way you've built work in Pursuit of Venus in particular, is so multi-layered. I mean, you're talking about the vignettes, the precursors, and we may even get on to ha you know, the, what's happened subsequently. But if the process is so multi-layered, then I hope by experience, uh, uh, by definition, our experience of it is multi-layered. It, it's universal and it's specific and it speaks to people in very different ways. Yeah. But it has a kind of emotional and intellectual arc. And it's always said, by me, reductively, <laughs> it begins with a fragment of wallpaper, but that's a formal trigger, or isn't it, or a content trigger, but it, it's everything that feeds into it. Yes. Everything in the last 30 years. Yeah, uh, and it's... Um, well, this image I have on screen here is called Taifatuki Redux House of Death, and I made... Um, this is a two-channel video work that I made while I was making In Pursuit of Venus, um, and in the Oceania show, there's this incredible costume. It's called the Tahitian Chief Mourner's Costume, and it took me a couple of years to be able to make it because I didn't, I'd never seen one. And I was researching from New Zealand and um, eventually myself and a couple of costume designers, there was uh, Stephen Ball and Bob Buck. Between us, we kind of created what looks very similar to the one that's upstairs. We made this costume. And I wanted to create that costume so I could see what it looked like on a body as opposed to reading um, an account of this 
crazy killing spree that Joseph Banks went out on with the chief mourner. Um, so what happened is Joseph Banks, when they were in Tahiti, a very high-born chief passed away. And while there's no chief leading a village, the chief mourner costume comes out and they go out on the killing spree in the morning and in the evening. And they black up and this costume is like masking up. It gives to you the permission. Who? Randomly people. Whoever is around. And in those, you know, in the, if you take yourself back a couple of hundred years, when you think of a villager in Tahiti sees this costume, might only ever see it come out once. Some people never saw it. Just to, to see that thing would strike them full of fear. So I wanted to see what that physically looked like. And when I made the costume and I had um, the actor in it, he actually stands seven foot tall. And um, what I discovered um, by not filming it in the green screen for Impercita Venus, but by taking it out into a primordial landscape in Karikari, which is outside of Auckland, seeing sunlight flash off the mask. And there was this idea that the flash of light would strike fear and kind of kill that person. So it's kind of, because these practices stopped straight after Captain Cook, we don't know what they kind of feel like. And you don't know how a costume moves um, until you put somebody in it. Mm -hmm. And you still don't see it move because it's on a mannequin. In, you know, it's still, it's static. But to see somebody actually try and physically move with that thing on is quite different. So this work was really looking at some uh, indigenous death mourning practices from Māori, um, Aboriginal Australia and Pacific people. But um, on the left-hand side of the screen, I worked uh, with another friend of mine who's a performance artist, uh, Rosanna Raymond, and I looked at where do women sit in amidst these things? Um, what is women's power? And, and what's our role around those kind of death practices. So uh, for me, again, it's just being an artist has given me the um, permission to kind of look in at these things. And I also, I'm not always looking at historic pieces. Um, I've just chosen a, a range, a small range of things here. A lot of my work is quite experimental, quite different to what you're seeing in the oceanic show. So I should move on, because I don't know what the time is. Interesting as you move that, that one of the things that I think Nick, Peter and Adrian have done in this exhibition is, is not ossify or um, kill uh, objects. They've kind of they've animated them. They've brought them to life in certain ways. But it's really interesting here your excavation or archaeology of, say, the Chief Mourner's costume where respect for objects and museological practice and so on means we can't, we can't do that. But you can replicate and do it. And, and that's why I think your work specifically in contemporary art in general and the way it's been incorporated in the exhibition, I think it plays very interesting roles, and one of them is physically bringing things to life. Yeah. This isn't working, um, Benji. We're going to the, um, I think we call it the money shot in Western <laughs> Ireland for the purposes of this talk, yeah. But so this is, um, we had a beautiful curved screen for Impercita Venus in Campbelltown, and we did that because they didn't have a room big enough to show the entire length of the work as it was in Venice. 
And so we curved it round, and then it's really nice because you can go like that, like I'm doing here. I can sort of we scan had a the room. There was a conversation at the beginning of, as to what, because of where we wanted it to be, yeah. as to whether or not we'd do it more in the round. Yeah. Um, and in Venice, as you say, it was in, it was it was straight. It was a frieze. Um, it was in a 14th, 15th century stone naval building at the end of the Arsenale. Here in Camelton, it's it's in the round. Now it's at the Royal Academy with all that colonial, post-colonial baggage. Um, you've shown a member of the royal family it. Uh, it's going to Paris. Um, how is it, not the way it's evolved uh, formally and technically, we'll do that in a minute, but how is it for you seeing it in those shifting contexts? I love it. I mean, I love... Um, I was someone asked me this the other day, and I said, it's like going to see the same show in different galleries. Different things kind of take your attention or different things sing in, in different architecture and contexts. Um, so this context for the Campbelltown Art Centre show was, it was all my work. And so for the audience, they could move through a whole you know, 30 years of work and see where this arrived. Whereas I think what's happening for, and I think it's very useful, this is how my reading of the Oceanic show, is people are seeing these incredibly beautiful um, taonga artefacts, and then they're seeing something that's brought to life and can kind of understand or get a sense of how these artefacts have ended up in museums all around Europe. You know, for me, because my father comes from the far north, a lot of... Um, our visual material, it's in Russia, it's in the UK, it's all over the world and it's not up north. Um, the, the, you know, the, our whanenui, our meeting house, our meeting place for our tribal group has no carving on the walls, there's, there's nothing there because so much of it disappeared and went offshore around the 19th century. So... Um, I think people can sort of see some of these encounters, understand the people who've created them, why they might end up in museums in the way that they have, and see some of the you know some of it's traded and some of it's stolen. So I think that's um, I think it's playing a really good role for Oceania and for me. I mean, it's kind of I, I it's being noticed, which is which is really great. But I think for the show itself, the way that it functions is very useful. It's clear that identity and identities are, they can mutate, and certainly in terms of context and where they're shown. And it's clear that one can be a, a Maori artist, a New Zealand artist, an Oceanic artist, an international artist. Um, in Venice, you were very much part of a kind of international art circus jamboree. Yeah. Um, here, you're part of an Oceanic culture, or re representation of an Oceanic culture. When you so in Auckland, it was very much you. This is you. Your retrospective. Um, how much? I mean, it's a very Western question, but how? How? And you're clearly very aware of it. But how consciously? Because this is what Western museums always do. They want people to have dialogue with Western art practice of the last 150 years with modernism, postmodernism, so on. But how much as you, was your practice as it emerged a conscious conversation with, an exploration of? Modernism, and how much was it pushing it to one side or repudiating it? Well, I've never really been interested in modernism in that manner. And, and as I say, for me, um, it's given me the opportunity. I felt because 
as I was going through my education in high school years, um, which is like the A and O levels, I think they call it here, I couldn't get... It was really difficult to learn te reo Māori or language. And so what I wanted to do was translate the feelings that I had through um, visual images but also soundscapes because I think sound is so powerful. It's a feeling that most people... Um, are less aware of how much it really changes the way that you think and feel in a space. Um, so for me, it was more, it's always been an exploration of what my father lost. I think it's trying to unearth that, but also as a woman and coming from a very small... So my father's side was this, like, they're like, I call them the Rehana rabbits. There was just so many... Um, on the Māori side, there was just this huge family, whereas on my English and Welsh side, it's very, very small, but it's all women. Um, I had a great-grandmother until I was 17. My grandmother um, passed away last year. She's from here in London. She was 100 when she passed away. So uh, my mother has a sister, so there's two women. So for me, it's really trying to honour my father's culture and women, and seeing where women sit. And it's been really interesting this year of the suffrage because New Zealand was the first place on earth to give women the right to vote. And actually, um, from a Maori perspective, women always had the right to vote. And when the Treaty of Waitangi was signed with the Crown, the British Crown, in fact, there's only two women's um, signatures on that document but there were way more women who were actually very powerful and landowners in their own regard. But those men never went and talked to the women and asked their, for their signatures. So um, I've, I, I feel like I'm um, kind of... You know, we've got Jacinda Ardern, unmarried Prime Minister. She's fabulous. She's a hu- humanitarian. She's a great person. I, and as I said before at the beginning of the talk, I think there are some lovely things as we are like the teenagers of the world, there are some great things that we can model, and I think those are some of the things that we can model for it. And Would those... you like to swap prime ministers? We, we have a woman. I mean, I have to say she's... Oh, that's right, you have a woman prime minister. Your one, yeah. Oh, my goodness, it's yeah, let's such not a pickle, <laughs> isn't it? It really is. Um, you, you, the, the pursuit, in the pursuit of Venus, is a bit, it's, I mean, there's, there's literally historic fragments. There's imagination that's boundless. There are colonial episodes. There's the narrative art that I talked about or mentioned. There's uh, the quest to try and see the bigger picture, the firmament, the charting of Venus. I mean, it has it all. Um, Have you been surprised by anyone's response to the work in different places? Or is it by definition, you've painted... I mean, it's such a microcosmic and macrocosmic view that it's almost not going to be surprising that people will see things in all sorts of different ways. Um, sometimes I'm surprised that they don't uh, realise it's Captain Cook being when he dies on the beach in Hawaii. I mean, it's a very um, dramatic moment. The soundtrack kind of builds up, and there's screaming. And um, and I really, it was great. I came to London to Angel's Costume House, which is a very famous costume house yes. here, and I rented um, the kind of the classic uh, Cook. Um, uniform, and I just used it all throughout all the stories because I thought it just needs to be recognisable. 
Um, but I don't think people realise what happened, happened to Captain Cook on the beach that day. Um, his death happened very, very quickly. There were thousands of people there. Um, and then he was dismembered into about 16 pieces. And then those uh, piece, parts of his body were sent around to different Hawaiian islands. And his thigh and his hat was returned um, to the resolution, to his crew members. And I really wanted to look at those moments to, because I thought it was a really interesting idea that it was like, it was sort of heroic and honorific act um, from a, a Pacific perspective, giving back the thigh bone and the hat. Your head is a very sacred part of the body. So, of course, his hat was very meaningful and it's returned to the crew members who are just like aghast because they just get some bits. And one of my favourite lines in, in Pursuit of Venus is... Um, when they would get these, they go, well, where's the rest of him? <laughs> I just, the actor just sort of blurted it out, and, you know, because they were just kind of riffing. We had these kind of scenes and ideas that I, I wanted to um, record, and then they're kind of riffing in amidst it. And I just think that's hilarious. But also that, you know, at the same time as we've been seen as savages in our country, terrible things were happening in Europe. Cannibalism was a fact in various places. And when you go to um, churches, they often have reliquies. So I thought, I'm trying to find these things that invite people in to understand that honour, that, yes, you can see it as a horrific act, but you can also see it as an honorific act, and that there are multiple points of view going on at any one point in time. Which, of course, is the acronym, or the initialism, to be exact, uh, POV, yes. Pursuit of Venus, but point of view. Yeah. Which is, again, if we had a manifesto for your approach, it would be a multiplicity of viewpoints, even though it's driven by one perspective. And I think that's in Walsh too. You sit, you're behind the camera, and the camera's actually in the scene, so you kind of see how, see how information is recorded, because it's always recorded from one person's point of view. I mean, I'm not a historian. I'm an artist. I, I was really inspired by Les Sauvages, Delamere, Pacific... I loved it. You know, I call it Chinese whispers, which is a terrible thing to say, but in a way it's this, you know, there's these beautiful recordings and renditions by artists who were there. You know, and, and I put the artists in there and I put these Western explorers in there as well. I wanted them to be implicit in this history, but I wanted to, people to see how brave they were. By, you know, they, they didn't walk around with the Marines, they actually had to go and meet people, get permission to record their images sometimes or negotiate those, those moments. So I wanted to show what kind of, you know, that, that's kind of, you know, all those permutations of what it takes to have these images that survived. But then the wallpaper is done by the French and they are inspired by illustration, copies of illustrations of illustrations of illustrations of illustrations. And then it was like a Chinese whispers and I was looking at these so-called Pacific people and they didn't look anything like what I know they look like. So I wanted to... Um, create this correction. But I also have a, another funny story that I will share with you. When I was young, because um, my mum collected wallpapers, she was really into interior design. Um, she didn't have a lot of money, but she would buy beautiful things. And in my bedroom, she had this crazy orange woodblock wallpaper. And I used to stare at it until... And I wouldn't blink, and I'd stare at it until all these images would levitate off the walls, and then I'd move them around the room. 
So I've always been interested in, you know, like what your surroundings are and what a wallpaper, mm -hmm. what it does. I'm going to do something terrible um, now Ooh. because I didn't promise that I would throw you out to the floor. And, um, and, and you say, obviously, in, in, the, in the meeting place, it's non-hierarchical. But I'm going to be really hierarchical. <laughs> I'm going to monopolize you because we're sort of out of time. But, okay. but rather than throw you to the floor, I'm going to say people can catch you having a drink and they can come and hear you at Freeze Masters on Saturday. But in the five minutes that we've got, which is maximum, I'd love, because I know there are two or three more works you've got to show us, I'm going to make the unilateral decision just to let you complete the picture for the moment and just to look at a couple of works that you've made briefly since uh, Pursuit of Venus, because okay. I think that's a better thing to share. Okay. I mean, I've probably made the wrong decision, but that's my decision, <laughs> so stick with it. Okay, so Don't on, throw on me to the floor. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, oh, these are just... Um, I made these, I wanted to create images of, look at whiteness, because I always get called an indigenous artist in Maori, which I am, but people forget that I have this other um, aspect, which is my um, English, Welsh, Jewish, Irish, and Scottish, Scottish lineage, so I wanted to create these beautiful images of these kind of human animals, so these are, it's very hard for you to see, but just to give you a sense of other things that I'm interested in. I'm also interested in science fiction because science fiction is where you can imagine the future. And um, so I wanted to think about the future. Um, and this is the next film I'm making. It's for the Sharjah Biennale and um, it will go on show in March next year. And it's called Nomads of the Sea. And it's the story of women and what they're their roles were in 1804. So Charlotte Badger was a, um, she was in the Parramatta Women's Prison. She had ended up there after being a pickpocket um, found on the streets of London and sent to Australia to Parramatta. And then she ended up in, um, uh, let me think, Tasmania. So there's a woman's prison in Tasmania. What I love about Charlotte is she ended up creating a mutiny in stealing a boat called Venus. <laughs> so she stole this boat called Venus and ended up in the far north of the North Island, quite close to where my father's um, tribe comes from. It's a place called Rangihawa Pa. And it's the first site of um, colonisation, really, in New Zealand, um, there was an invitation to create a church there. However, I digress. I really was interested in what women's power was at this point in time. So I've set up this story between Charlotte Badger and this young woman called Puhi. And um, I've always wanted to make a 3D film. So the next film that I'm working on is um, in 3D. And, um, I mean, it's the classic thing, right? You want to see women fighting. And um, so I had to do it. So as much for my lesbian girlfriends. Once again, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> as my boyfriends and male friends and what have you. But of course, because we have these beautiful, um, this is a tayaha, so it's one of um, a weapon uh, that is used. And she's a great exponent of this weapon. And I wanted her to have a power. And that her power was um, to be a great warrior woman. And so Charlotte Badger actually, in reality, ended up under the protection of a Maori chief, and she lived in New Zealand for eight years. Um, and this is the Maori chief here. He's got marvellous thighs. And this is my friend Eds, who I've been working with um, as an actor for a number of times now. Um, and so this is the moment when he kind of 
falls in love with Puhi. Um, but I wanted to sort of have an exploration, use this, these women's stories and think about the very first Western Māori girl that's born in New Zealand because of, there would be one. And in a way, it's me imagining what it might have been like at that period in time. Um, and I've also um, brought in another element, and this is Storyteller. I've been working with some dancers, and I want to kind of look at a futuristic aspect to it. And I've been um, working uh, with Machu Hamuera, who's also from the far north. I like making costumes, and um, I've taken this costume, and he's sort of telling the story, and he's wearing these headdresses, and the idea of that is to indicate to the audience when to put on the 3D glasses. So, if you're in the United Arab Emirates in March of next year, I think it's going to be a very interesting work, because I really want to take the audience on a journey and make them feel like they're inside a film. So that's my, my next challenge. Extraordinary. The Sharjah Biennale, this isn't a self-puff, but Lisa and I did a, a, a conversation and we made a programme for BBC World Service where we talked a little about this work that's still on the BBC iPlayer. Uh, the In Pursuit of Venus will be on here until the middle of December, but it's got a glittering future, I think, not just in Paris. Um, it's been a great pleasure to work with you and to have you here. Um, I hope we see more of you. And um, you. I'm sorry to have to truncate you, but I mean, this, could, we, this is a conversation that we, that we really could take on and on. Past, we've talked about present, we've looked into the future. Lisa Marana, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, Feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.